Hello, and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We left off last week and spoke about the infamous, likely serial killer. (laughs) Just kidding. He was a single time offender, a one hit wonder. It was Scott Peterson. And we've been just chatting about him. We've been trying to figure out, is he a friend? Is he a foe? We're leaning like 99.9% towards foe at this point. And the sad part is, I mean, we were trying to be neutral. We're trying to offer both sides of the argument. But unfortunately, there's just so much information that skews to the Scott did it side of the equation. Yeah. And hopefully, as we continue on here, we'll develop kind of both sides of the coin, like we said. But it's just looking a little ugly for our boy Scott here, in spite of his movie star good looks. So just circling back to where we were last week. And again, want to thank our listener, Joanna Cottrell. I hope that I got that pronunciation right this time, Joanna. We talked quickly and... I told her, I'm so sorry for butchering your name multiple times. And you were kind enough to say, no, 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 you said it right the first time. So hopefully that was the first time to which you were referring and we got it right (laughs) again. But anyway, so thanks. Big thanks to Joanna for recommending this episode. I'm so glad we got to dig deeper into this. And the last time we spoke, we were at the end of January 2003, January 25th, to be precise. And at this point in our story, Scott now knows that Amber Fry, you might remember her as the blonde mistress with a young child. And Scott was just going behind Lacey's back and he told her big heartfelt confession. Oh, I once had a wife, but she died suddenly and it was tragic and awful. And that's why I didn't tell you because these are going to be my first holidays without her. And of course, as we said last week, Amber Fry was very sympathetic. She backed off right away, didn't ask any further questions, which is exactly what Scott was looking for. I'm sure she just kind of went on as normal. But when we left off last week, Amber was starting to work with the police to give some information about Scott. And at this point, Scott is livid with Amber, but he's still contacting her. Yeah. One such phone call happened at the end of last episode and he called her he said I just about threw up when I saw you crying on the news and was just trying to really intimidate her saying oh I was proud of you for yeah speaking up like good job it Gross. was really twisted he's a sick fuck yeah Amber is working with the cops Scott knows it he's still contacting her and at this point Scott is saying okay I'm gonna speak to the press and this is where we're starting. So shockingly, Scott actually stuck to his word. And on January 28, 2003, he did an interview with Diane Sawyer. And before this, his attorneys obviously tried to talk him out of it, but he was adamant that he was going to do it. And he also did three additional interviews with a couple local reporters, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, So the interview was interesting. Uh, Did not do him any favors. I don't think it was a good choice. In my opinion, he had kind of a weird affect during the whole thing. Lots of just like slow blinking and looking down and just closing his eyes. Like it was just very weird to me. And 
truthfully, I, I hate the body language analysis stuff because I just think it's so like, oh, you look up to this side or you whatever. Like, I don't know. I don't put a lot of stock in it just because people are weird and have weird ticks. And so you need to know their baseline of what is weird and what's not for them before you can be like, oh, this stuff is definitely you know, he's looking up this way. So it means this, but I I will say though, there's, I feel like you can get a gut feeling. Most people can get a gut feeling for when other people are off or something is wrong. That's, I think more the universal thing that you can feel. And so for this, you know, you can also kind of write it off as, which to me is totally explainable that it was nerves. This is his first time talking out, out about his wife's case, which is not a good look. First time talking with the media. That's a big celebrity interviewer. It's a big platform. And he also wasn't properly prepped for these interviews. So, it, you know, I can see how that can kind of translate. There was a lot that you could take away from the interview with Diane Sawyer. First of all, he lied off the bat, just Boldface lied to her saying that he told police immediately, he even said on December 24th, when he met with police, he told them about Amber Fry. He never told them about her. She is the one that went to the police. So yeah, no, not a good look, Scott. He also said that he had told Lacey about the affair with Amber in early December. So not too long before her disappearance, which... I don't think anybody believes. There's no way that he told her. And there's just no backup for that whatsoever. I mean, and obviously just his concealment of the entire thing. Like, of course you didn't tell her. No one knew about this. And she was the one who outed you. So don't pretend it was your idea. And if you even look at those two statements, they contradict each other. Because if he told police about the affair right away, wouldn't it have come out that... He was having this affair. We have some sound bites or some some of the back and forth between Scott and Diane, which I think is <laughs> it just sounds weird to say it like that. Little city about Scott and Diane to American kids growing up in the heartland. <laughs> One killed his wife. <laughs> Give me a hint. It's the only guy and it wasn't Diane. So again, here we're talking about the affair and Scott claiming that he told Lacey about this in early December. So Diane says, did it cause a rupture? Scott says it was not a, a positive, obviously. No, duh. Diane says a lot of arguing. Scott, no, (laughs) you know, I can't say that, that even she was okay with the idea, but it wasn't anything that would break us apart. Diane says, do you really expect people to believe that an eight and a half month pregnant woman makes peace with it? Scott, well, I'm, yeah, I, you don't know. No one knows our relationship, but us. Yeah. Okay. Nobody does Scott, but I don't think you're even, uh, giving us some real insight there. I just love how Diane completely cut to the chase on that one. I mean, she like didn't waste any time. She was like, you really like think the American public is that stupid, Scott? Like that your eight month pregnant wife was like down with the affair. Give me a break. Right. Didn't tell anybody about it. No family, friends. There wasn't even an argument about it. It was just, all right, okay great. I'm just going to bring our first child into the world, but okay. Sounds good. Like no problem. Do what you do. So another really important point is 
talking about their marriage. So Diane says, tell me about the state of your marriage. Scott says, you know, glorious, glorious. Okay. We took care of each other very well. Um, she was amazing, is amazing. Woo. Like awkward. Yeah. Sounds like somebody who knows that his wife is dead because he killed her. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. And again, this is only like a month after she went missing. Like, okay. And so to me, I, that can happen. Yes. Because especially in cases where, you know, the family's bracing for kind of all the evidence is showing, yeah, they're probably dead. But I mean, I've seen so many cases where the family members and loved ones struggle to even years later use the past tense because it just hasn't really hit them. It just doesn't feel right. And for him to just automatically switch into that, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I feel like it's just, it's too quick. He seems so resigned. He's, and as we know from before, which we're going to get into this in a second, but we know from before that Scott wasn't exactly hard pressed to find information out about how the investigation was going. He wasn't asking questions of the police. He wasn't getting involved at all. So he seems very, you know, hands off and okay, what's done is done. Like she was great and our marriage was right. glorious, but it ain't no more because she did. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So coming into February and on that same topic, February 3rd, 2003, Scott calls the police to ask them to ensure that they are doing everything they can to find Lacey. Funny timing, isn't it? It almost seems like he's trying to cover his tracks late in the game and show up as the doting, caring husband who is making the effort to find out information. It's too little too late for me. Yeah. I mean, and you just did this interview. You're looking terrible. I'm sure people are raising questions like, why hasn't he called? Like, why isn't he asking questions? And I wouldn't be surprised if his attorneys you know, advised him, like, are you calling? You got to look like the grieving husband. Yeah. Like get it on the record that you care about this and that you're calling and you're trying to get the information and you're, right. you're being the good guy here. And, you know, I think that that's very astute to think that, all right, his lawyers said, listen, Scott, you're looking pretty bad. You put your foot in it last time you were in the public eye. It's time to bolster your credibility a little bit and play this part. And Like we said before, this is the first time that Scott has ever made an effort to call the police. He hasn't done diddly swat until now. Lacey went missing two days before Christmas practically, and now it's February. So that gives you a good idea of months have gone by at this point. So too little, too late in my book. I agree. On February 10th, this is sad, but on February 10th, 2003, Lacey's due date comes and goes and there's no news and that was just another cruel kind of point where time was clearly marching on dates are passing and the date of their unborn child's birth should have been february 10th or around there yeah and i think it's kind of sad and scary too because it's it makes it a reality that okay if she did serve you know she did survive she was alive out there that baby would have been born hopefully by now. So is, you know, holding out hope is, is that baby out there now and alive. So it's definitely very sad. Yeah. 
pretty revolting. So then it's almost two months later when a huge break happens in this case. This is April 13th, 2003. There's a big crazy storm in the area the night before on April 12th. And at 11.43 a.m., the remains of a male fetus wash on shore on San Francisco Bay Beach and are found, unfortunately, again, for the dog-loving community by a dog walker. Yes, dog theme. <laughs> right? I was talking about this with Joanna and um, how, like, tied to Mackenzie we both were and how sad we were yeah. for Mackenzie. Like, above all else, I mean, who's the real victim in all this? Not the murder victim, no, but the dog Mackenzie who was neglected. Mackenzie dragging the leash. Come on. Poor Mackenzie. Come on. But... Yeah, so another dog-loving victim here. And they find this fetus. That's pretty messed up. So the day after the male fetus washes up, more bad news. About a half a mile, which is around 0.8 of a kilometer from where the baby's body was found, a woman's decomposing torso, and this is only the torso people, was found. And this was found only two miles, which again, converting that to kilometers, that's about 3.2 kilometers from the marina. And at this time, the detectives had a tracker on Scott's car. Thank God. Yeah, so they knew where he was. And he was in San Diego where his parents live. And he said he was staying out there with family to get away from the press, which you know, could kind of cut either way. Yeah. Um, makes sense that he's getting sort of sick of the press hounding him, but also it's like, don't be a dick, Scott. Like, yeah. don't you care that your wife is missing? So now that these bodies have been found, there was this growing concern that Scott would flee. And they were really worried, especially because of San Diego's proximity to the Mexican border. So if you're Scott, I mean, I would be hauling ass to Mexico right now. Yeah. Obviously, before the police could really do anything, they needed to confirm, even though everybody knew, but they needed to confirm that the bodies were Lacey and Connors. So on April 18th, 2003, the results came back from DNA that it was their bodies And at this point, they went to tell Scott that they had found their bodies. And so they obviously had the tracker on. They go out to find him. What was Scott doing at the time? Oh, his favorite pastime that he didn't get to do the first go around playing golf. Good old golf. And he was going to the Torrey Pines golf course, which was only about 30 miles from the Mexico border. So red flags, they got to get him while they can. The police start trailing him and he says later that he thought they were the press. So (laughs) he starts driving erratically. That's great. Let's put everyone else in danger and likely story. Yeah. Like way to go. And he's speeding, um, you know, just swerving all over whatever. And they actually followed him for about an hour over an hour. And then finally got to the point where they were like, all right, (laughs) this driving's bad enough. We're going to pull him over. And when they did, they told him that they had found Lacey and Connor's bodies. And again, you know, he had kind of no reaction there. Not a good sign for our empathetic friend over here. I mean, how do you have no reaction if you didn't do it? He is acting like somebody who killed his pregnant wife and dumped her in the water, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. 
Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. We'll see. But they then obviously arrested him at that point. And this whole incident is really important, actually, though, because of what Scott looked like and what he had on him. This is, I mean, <laughs> at this point, if if this isn't guilty, I don't know. I don't know what you were doing. So he had grown a goatee and he had dyed his hair and the goatee. And to me, it looked like a really bad dye job. It looked like he put sun in in his hair. You know how it's like if your hair is too dark and you do that, you kind of get like an orange hue to it. It's <laughs> not very good. So he uh, had that look going on and then he had a ton of stuff in his car. Some of the more interesting ones are $300 in camping gear, including a tent and a water purifier. This is feeling a lot like Brian laundry. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Although <laughs> Brian laundry, I guess, never went for the, the sun and goatee look. Thank God. Oh. oh my God. That was not a good look. No, not a good, not a good look. Um, so he also had $15,000, about $15,000 in cash four cell phones, which is kind of interesting given the time period. It's the early, early 2000s. Even for a cheater, that's a lot of cell phones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, he had knives. So he had the, a couple of like kind of those flip out pocket knives that you see for camping. And then he also had a hidden dagger in his car, which was like, it, it almost looked like a mini sword with like really tiny, but like mini sword with like a handle on it. Like it, it was kind of hidden. It looked like from the picture that it was somewhere in the seats or something like that, like tucked down in there. He also had a gun. So that's great. He had six pairs of shoes with him. <laughs> You know, gotta, gotta have your options. <laughs> Obviously just a light little golfing trip. He needs all yeah. six of his pairs of shoes. He didn't want to wear the same. He didn't want to show up and be wearing the same thing his dad was by accident. I mean, heaven forbid. So six uh, outfit changes, <laughs> a little light for a golfing trip. <laughs> yeah. Come on. You need 18, at least one for each hole. Um, and so he had enough pairs of socks and underwear for weeks too. This also was funny to see the evidence photos where it's just like socks, 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 underwear, underwear, underwear laid out on the table, like <laughs> tons of stuff. Do you have the involuntary tick of when you're packing for a short yes. vacation to bring enough underwear to shit yourself every yes. single day yes. and then several more pairs after That's that? That's why I even said yes too early. Like, yes, a hundred percent. It's like, I'm going for one night. I'll bring four. He also had this to me was kind of creepy he had 15 laminated posters of Lacey that had never been given out so so I just want to know what kind of posters are these are they like look like missing person posters yeah. or like yeah they're ugh. just it's like a printout like printer paper size but I guess laminated I was trying to I was wondering like did he laminate it I don't think so I think they were just laminated so that if you you know if it rained when you put them up put they them were up. fine but to have 15 of them to me felt kind of like uh, taking him for his creepy memory box in Mexico. Like, I don't right. know. Or like he was supposed to be putting them out. Oh, like, true. Stuff and didn't because Ooh. he knew she wasn't going to turn up. Not putting this at the marina. Uh, I'll, I'll take the marina area, everybody. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll plaster it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I got that covered. He also had Viagra with him. So that's interesting. And he had his brother's ID. Was his brother a blonde? Was he trying to look like the brother or what? I don't like... think, like, I think looking at the picture, 
no. And his brother didn't have a goatee or anything like that either. I guess he's hoping, you know, he gets to the Mexico border and they're just like, oh, white guy. Okay, here we go. And so Scott tried to claim, you know, oh, there's a reasonable explanation for these things, or at least for some of them. So he said that he dyed his hair and grew the goatee because he wanted to disguise himself from the media. Always the media, right? Like it's so hard to be targeted by the media if you're an actual murderer. Also, let's just say we're out here in California, the, the like Mecca of paparazzis, a goatee and hair dye is not going to keep them away from you, Scott. I'm sorry to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Like it didn't work for Alec Baldwin. It's not going to work for you. (laughs) Right. Exactly. He also said that he had his brother's ID because he could get a discount at that particular golf course. Oh, I do that all the time. I take my siblings um, driver's license. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna get a discount. Gonna just take your ID with me. That sounds reasonable. And I'm sure his brother would have been just fine without his ID if there was an emergency or anything like that. He's not going to drive anywhere in the meantime. No. And then this one just was weird to me. He had about $15,000. And he said that his mom accidentally took out $10,000 from their joint checking account that the two of them were on and that she returned the cash to Scott so that the, the account wouldn't be on hold. So I guess instead of putting it back in, would have put a hold on it or something. I don't really know, but that's just ridiculous. Also, then you're still carrying around $5,000. Yes, that's what I was thinking too. Yes. Like that's still quite a large sum of money to be carrying around in cash. It's obvious that you're trying to make a quick getaway. Yeah. Where were you stuffing it in the socks? Like, where were you keeping this cash? Like that's a lot of cash, right? Is it going under the mattress? So on April 21st, 2003, Scott was arraigned and he got two counts of murder for Lacey and for the unborn child, which is actually interesting based on, you know, the current state of affairs with the law and with what constitutes a life and when life begins and all these, you know, questions that we're starting to ask ourselves in today's legal atmosphere. But he did get that second count of murder for Connor, who was as of yet unborn. So that's, that's just an interesting thing. I mean, I'm happy that that happened to him and I'm happy he got hit for that second count, but I also think that the implications are interesting, but I agree with you. So on top of that, after the DA met with Lacey's family, they ended up deciding that this would be a death penalty case, which woohoo. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, if anything should be. Yeah. How like you literally hacked up your wife and unborn child and threw her in the water to die. And right. I don't know. I think that kind of deserves a death, an eye for an eye type of punishment on Agreed. that one. Agreed. On January 20th, 2004, and this ended up, this Scott case bounced around so much over the years. There was so much back and forth, which granted, of course there is, because when you have stakes as high as death row and you know that somebody is going to lose their life, obviously there are appeals on appeals and just all different issues that get brought up. And of course you want somebody to be able to prove that they didn't really do something if that's a thing right to excuse them from having to die but obviously that's sort of what happened here so on january 20th 2004 the trial venue changed from modesto to redwood city 
And then all the way in June, because these things take forever Forever. to get processed, there's always a ton of procedural stuff. There's always a ton of waiting back and forth, new information coming to light. So it's normal that this took another six months for trial to begin. And it did on June 1st, 2004. And Scott was represented by Mark Garagos, which is actually really funny because that name like as yeah. a kid, I even remember yes. knowing that name. It was a household name, even yes. with us. Yep, I, exactly. That's like, I got to be honest, some of the people that I, like are listed here that he represented didn't ring a huge bell to me, but his name did for some reason. Like, yeah, it, I don't know. It's so, same exact reaction. Immediately. Some other folks that Mr. Garagos represented were Gary Condit in the Chandra Levy case. There was White Water in the Susan McDougal situation. And he even represented President Clinton's brother, Roger. So this guy has been around the block. He represents all kinds of high profile clients. And he's clearly the one for the job. Yes. Which is you know, just crazy that this is the guy that Scott hires. Yeah. Because at this point, he's such a nefarious character. The media hates him, but they know right. him. Right. And he was he was all over the place. I mean, we could pick him out at, probably at whatever age we were at this point. We're probably 12 or 13 years old. And we could point at him and know that that was Scott Peterson. He was a celebrity in his own right for being a bad guy. Right. In, in, a wrong, in the wrong way there. So a couple important points that we wanted to note about the trial and this doesn't really cover everything but there's some just important broad sweeps here so there was evidence about scott's alibi that came out and just all the different lies that he told were kind of aired out in front of the jury and presented to them and it became so clear what a lying guy this dude really was And a lot of the information that we've covered in this episode and last episode was brought to light during this trial. So, you know, we know as the audience and as people who live in the future, what happened and we have all the information that's available now in 2022, but a lot of this information came out during this trial. So it was obviously very important and you know, we're going to go into now the key items that were presented in the case that just were the final nails in the coffin for Scott and just some really disturbing information that came out. Yeah. Yeah. I think these, like, if you had to bullet it, like we did kind of, these would be the, the big ticket items, I guess you'd want to say in the case. So the first one was these cement anchors. So the prosecution claimed that Scott had made five homemade eight pound anchors in his warehouse. And only one of them was then found on his boat. These were homemade anchors. They were made by pouring concrete into those plastic planter containers, you know, kind of the ones that you get your, your plant in, and then you transfer it just kind of the throwaway kind. And the prosecution was saying there was enough uh, evidence of a number of these concrete anchors made because there were rings on the floor of the, of the warehouse. So from picking up and putting down the pots, I guess, pot concreters in (laughs) picking these up, putting them down can make rings. I don't understand how, because there's five rings, that means there were five anchors. Like you could definitely, I mean, I could see their thinking, but you could obviously pick up the pot 
move it elsewhere, pick it up, you know, like move it a couple times right. or whatever. It creates a second ring for the same pot. But I guess right. maybe like the ring gets created while you're filling it with concrete and then it dries True. and you're done kind of thing rather than True. like it staying wet i don't know where the hell did he get access to like all this concrete though like geez he just he just bought himself a 90 pound bag at like home depot or something but the claim obviously was that these anchors were used to weigh down each of Lacey's limbs and i do want to point this out because i saw this on a blog actually somebody said are four eight pound anchors really going to be enough to weigh somebody to weigh down a body yeah, like, I was wondering the I don't same know. thing. 32 pounds to me. That just, yeah, I don't know if that sounds like picturing like an eight pound little hand weight or whatever that you use, like four of those. Maybe you just need, well, maybe it wasn't sufficient and that's why she washed up. Maybe, but I would have thought she would have washed up sooner if it was. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a good point. Well, and if you think about like a boat, right? Like boats are massive. But the anchor, in comparison to the boat, probably doesn't weigh that much. Oh, yeah. And I mean, his boat is fairly small, but like just in general, like that's like nothing to kind of bring on board with you. I'm again, just picturing like eight pound like hand weights Four of those is like nothing. So again, Scott claimed that he only made one anchor, which they did find. And he used the rest of this 90 pound bag of concrete to patch his driveway. So it was kind of described weirdly, but then I did see um, a picture of it. He actually just poured the concrete powder like in some rocky area at the end of his driveway. I don't know what the reasoning was, but um, the prosecution's expert said that the concrete wasn't consistent. The defense said that the concrete was consistent. No anchors were ever found, even though there was an an extensive um, dive team effort. So who really knows? I don't know. So this next piece of evidence is kind of like the only real biological evidence that's in the case at all, tying Scott to Lacey and Lacey possibly being there. And that is a single piece of hair. It was confirmed to be Lacey's that was tangled in a pair of pliers that were found in the, in Scott's boat. And to me, I don't, I don't know how much weight this holds like a single hair. I don't know where the pliers, you know, you could have had pliers laying around. He could have even had a hair on him. You know, it's so easy to kind of write it off as, as to where this came from. So to me, being the only biological real kind of evidence like this, I don't, I don't think it holds much weight. So when we get down to it, when we get down to kind of the brass tacks, could Scott have put her body on the boat and dumped it into the water? And so just some logistics here, we are looking at a 14 foot fishing boat and it would have been probably difficult to put her body on the boat without being seen And then it also would have been very difficult to throw her body over without accidentally capsizing the whole boat and flipping himself over, basically. And the prosecution claimed that they didn't attempt to reenact the whole throwing of the body into the water situation. And the defense, however, did reenact. 
and they tried to do the whole scene, you know, to prove that this wouldn't have been possible because it would have been so difficult for Scott to have thrown the body overboard without capsizing himself. So in their reenactment, of course, the defense side tries to throw the quote unquote body or the body double, whatever, into the water. And of course they did in doing so flip out and the boat took on water and, but it didn't totally capsize. So even in trying to prove his innocence because of this quote unquote impossibility of throwing the body overboard without capsizing, the boat still stayed upright. And this is his own defense team. So the the judge didn't allow the video because there is a video of them, you know, to, to come in to trial. They both made their claims about it, but I agree with you. Like, I don't know if you were to watch the video, they do seem kind of ex- a little exaggerated, not totally exaggerated in kind of what they're doing, their actions to make it try to capsize and tip over. But yeah, it's, it's pretty bad if they can't even make it, you know, work. <laughs> so just some more interesting factoids about the boat. When Scott first bought the boat, the owner said that he had not started the motor since that September. And the boat had also only been in freshwater and never saltwater. So on Christmas Eve 2002, that was going to be the first time that Scott was going to run the boat. And it was risky. That would have been very risky behavior, not knowing if the boat would even run in the saltwater. So this makes a big impact on a boat's kind of ability right. to run properly is the salt water versus the fresh water. If it had only ever been in fresh water, it's kind of crazy that Scott would just willy nilly. And if you recall from last episode, his whole excuse for taking the boat out that day was just to right. get it in the water. Well, would you really just do it to get it in the water if there was a huge risk that the boat wouldn't even run properly. Yeah. Be and stranded out and there. likewise, you know, say if he did have the body on board, is he going to risk getting out there in a boat that then won't start? And there he is just paddling with an oar and a, and a body on board, you know, out there in the water. So if we look at some facts about Lacey's body, which washed up, Lacey's body was badly decomposed and the cause of death was undetermined. And the time of death was estimated to be three to six months prior to the discovery of the body. And it's insufficient to establish beyond reasonable doubt that Scott murdered her within the correct time frame. There were no wounds to the body, though. And the prosecutors argued, however, that Scott suffocated her. Now, what's interesting to me here is... As a child, weren't you under the impression that he chopped her up and threw her Yeah, yes, 100%. Yeah. I don't know how they got suffocation. Yeah, I don't get that at all. Especially, it's interesting, too, that they make the point that there's, quote, unquote, no wounds to the body, but she's cut in half. I know. I know. Well, I think their argument is, though, that I don't know about the head, because that, to me, just doesn't seem, um, ex- unless... Um, one of the anchors could have been, and this is, you know, kind of gory, but if the anchor had been placed around her neck and then kind of how a body rises and whatnot, um, yeah, could, could have separated there. So that's the argument. But yeah, to me, I always thought it was, <laughs> I mean, it's awful, but it's the truth. 
<laughs> I could have separated her capo was try to put it try to put it as nicely as possible <laughs> but yeah I mean you make a good point though because especially if there were five anchors you right. know obviously we only have four limbs she doesn't have a tail so maybe that fifth anchor was around her neck unfortunately no but that fifth anchor was found on on the boat they they claimed there were five anchors made Scott only had one in his possession so they thought the other oh. four were used to weigh down her body. That makes sense. Yeah. So hell, I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> Who knows? It's separated. It's separated. Oh. That's all you need to know. Yeah. It was just a torso by the time it got to the cops. Oof. So that was a, to the dog walker, I should say. Uh, yeah. Poor dog Talk walker. about a way to ruin your day. Oh my God. Yeah. No more beach walks. All right. So like you were saying, Lacey's body was so badly decomposed that it wasn't really the evidence that they needed to be able to narrow down the timeline. Uh, Connor's body, however, was much more intact and um, still decomposed, but not as much. And due to the amount of decomposition that was present, however, the cause of death could not be determined. The coroner who performed the autopsy on the fetus estimated that its age at death was about nine months or full term, which makes sense. We knew how far along Lacey was. So, you know, right on track there. A forensic anthropologist testified that the fetus's age was between 33 and 38 weeks, which I mean, this, in this situation can make a big difference. You know, is it, if it's 33 or 38, that can definitely narrow down the timeline of, you know, when, when this murder took place. So the prosecution's expert estimated, we're getting all these dates here, like date, 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 but the prosecution's expert estimated that the date was between December 21st and December 24th. The defense expert, however, argued that the baby was full, ter full term and had been born and then killed. So just went through about like four different opinions here, but it seems like there's kind of a lot of variability that can be there but yeah it's a pretty and it's hard gruesome. too because you know he was almost to term yeah. so it's like he was probably pretty much fully formed yeah. and ready to go so it probably didn't make that much of a difference you know whether he was in or out right because he was still like a fully developed ready to be born baby yeah so it's it makes sense why there would be some kind of ambiguity between like the in utero baby size and whether he had been born already so there's obviously a lot of variability a lot depends also on being exact with kind of when the baby was conceived um you know different babies are different sizes and then also a lot of this was based on just kind of your national averages which can definitely vary so aside from this, however, another piece of evidence was that um, when Connor's body washed ashore, there was this plastic tape kind of thing that was wrapped around his kind of upper neck body area. And it, to me, it almost looks like more of like a paper or more of like a plastic bag, almost like a stretched out plastic bag is almost kind of what it looks like to me, but I guess it's like this plastic tape. And you have to remember that the, there was a big storm and the body was washed ashore. So they attributed this to really being 
you know, just debris kind of from the storm, which I think makes sense to me. Cause it's not like it was actually like tied around his body. It was just kind of wrapped around it. And here's where I'll get into the it's kind of gruesome, but I'll get into what the argument is and kind of what I think about whether or not he was born or died at the time that Lacey died. So I think he died at the time that Lacey died and her body kind of kept him protected for as long as he was still inside her body in the water. And then it's pretty gruesome, but her body did actually have kind of like a cavity opening like in it. So it's not like the torso was solid. And I think it's very likely that that's when he was kind of expelled from her body then. And that would account for the difference in decomposition um, between her body and his body. That's my opinion. But so, yeah, just some other pieces that came to light during the trial. Um, The affair with Amber Fry, extremely damaging to Scott's case. The jury just felt some kind of way about her, obviously, and about Scott and his affair and how that it was incredibly prejudicial when it came to the jury deciding whether this was a good family man or a cheating bastard who killed his wife. So Amber testified and recordings were played and it just had an enormous impact on the jury. And a lot of the jurors after the fact actually said that this portion of the trial was like the thing that got them and really impacted them and just made their minds up about Scott. And obviously it's clear which direction they made their minds up in. They weren't like great guy. Love him. I'm sure he's totally innocent. Oh yeah. So happy to hear about him getting sick over her testify or her doing the press conference. Exactly. What a great guy. So when we get onto the verdict and sentencing on November 12th, 2004, and again, just keeping in mind how long all this stuff takes, because obviously the incident itself happened in 02, about two years prior. And then here we are finally at a verdict almost two years later. So It was November 12, 2004, when the jury convicted Scott of two counts of murder. Again, that's first-degree murder with special circumstances for killing Lacey and second-degree murder for killing the fetus she carried. So again, interesting perspective, interesting way of looking at this. Is a fetus really a quote-unquote life? Depends on what values you have and what you believe in, but... Again, it's great in this instance that the fetus was counted as a human and a full person because that yeah. allowed for Scott to be double charged with murder. It's in the second degree for Connor. And on March 16, 2005, Scott was sentenced to death by lethal injection. I think we all remember this. And just they kept flashing to Scott mm-hmm. and to his kind of sheepish looking face and his orange jumpsuit. And just him kind of skulking off and looking guilty. And that was just, I don't know. It's so hard because we're trying to be impartial, but yeah, some things just speak louder than words. But I don't think we've done the best job on this one. We're trying, but you know. So after the trial, there was some new evidence that came out that was kind of interesting. We're not going to get into this too in depth, but In 2017, the National Enquirer found six witnesses who claimed to have seen Lacey the day she disappeared. And we have a a map we'll put up. It shows the different 
people that kind of saw her along her route. This was the route that she would typically take. If you were to read through all their descriptions of the day, it's really kind of eerie. They all do kind of line up time time by time, you know, so-and-so saw her here at 10, so-and-so saw her here at 10, 15. Like it, it does kind of follow along her route, whether or not that was her. I mean, none of these people knew her personally. So it was just somebody seeing a pregnant woman walking a golden retriever. Did they see her that day? Did they see uh, her a different day? Did they see a different pregnant woman? So, you know, like there's a lot of variables, but it is kind of interesting. And then this is another thing that gets brought up a lot with this case. I personally don't think it has really anything to do with it, but at first, you know, blush, I guess you'd say at first blush, it does kind of have some similarities. So seven months before Lacey went missing 24 year old Evelyn Hernandez, who was also eight months pregnant, went missing along with her five-year-old son. Now, Evelyn lived in San Francisco, which was about 90 miles from Modesto, where Lacey lived. Both bodies, however, washed ashore uh, along the San Francisco Bay. And similar circumstances, Evelyn's arms and head were also missing when her body washed ashore. So authorities have said that there's no connection here. And I think after reading just a little bit about it, it seems to me pretty likely that the, her boyfriend and the father of her unborn child is likely the one responsible, but we're not going to say that, you know, allegedly, possibly type of thing. But I, I think the evidence points to there's not a serial killer out there, you know, killing eight month pregnant women. So wrapping things up. So the trial has been through appeals since 2012, which is, of course, the case, because when you have something with such high stakes like this and such a public matter, a famous trial, there's going to be a ton of appeals to make sure that this guy convicted of double murder who's going to be put to death really deserves Mm -hmm. it. So on June 2nd, 2020, the California Supreme Court heard an argument on Scott's appeal And the claim was as follows. The defense had the argument that prospective jurors were improperly excused from the trial and that the trial judge improperly allowed two jurors onto Peterson's boat. So, you know, sometimes they'll do a little bit of an exhibition where they try to show things kind of straight on and they'll take jurors to a certain location or show them a certain tool or you know, just to give them an idea of how things looked. So this isn't that weird that they would have kind of taken the jurors into kind of eyewitness range. And the whole claim was that the judge erred in insisting that the prosecution be present during the defense testing of the boat and that the motion to move the trial to another county should have been granted because of the juror questionnaire results, which basically showed that almost half of the prospective jurors had already decided that Peterson was guilty prior to the trial. So obviously when you're trying to get jurors for any case, you want to know that those jurors are going to be impartial and that they don't already have any ideas about which way the case should go prior to hearing all of the evidence. So if these jurors came in and they already had the idea, listen, this guy's guilty, which is going to be hard to find jurors that don't already feel that way about Scott Peterson. But regardless, 
it's not yeah. a good thing and could be grounds for a new trial and a new set of jurors. And then right. there's also the situation with the boat. It, it's no. hard to know what's going to be revealing and help the jury yeah. to understand the events that took place and what's going to be inflammatory and just upset people and, you know, make mm -hmm. them think that something's worse than it is. It could get them really upset and make them, you know, right. go more strongly in a different direction. So in any event, in August right. of 2020, Scott's death sentence was overturned. And by December 2021, so a year and some change after the death sentence was overturned, Scott was resentenced to life in prison. Then in February, and again, this is just a great example of how these cases can drag on and how there's all this back and forth and you just don't know oh because the, any evidence yeah. can tip the scale. Yeah. And we'll think about this. The crime happened in 2002. We're here in 2022. 20 years later. Like that's just insane. Yeah. That is nuts. Like this is a 20 year trial, a 20 year journey. And here we are still figuring stuff out. So February, 2022, there was a habeas corpus hearing on alleged juror misconduct and the juror in question, Rochelle Nice did not disclose that she had a restraining order in 2000 for fear that her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend could harm her own unborn child. So again, we want jurors who are not huh. thinking in a certain way, who are not likely to attribute guilt to somebody right. just based on their own prior experience. And this juror is just that. I mean, somebody who's afraid. She's like textbook. like Textbook. She's the person you don't pick for your jury right. in this case. Just ridiculous. So then- in June of 2022, so literally last month, by a couple yeah, weeks. Like, literally like last week. It was literally last week. It was June 29th. It was expected that we would hear final arguments in the case, but of course, got delayed because, I'm sure you guessed it, Why? one of the attorneys <laughs> tested positive for COVID. So now we've been rescheduled for August 11th. Who the hell knows which way these things are going to go? I oh mean, my God. I'm sure these lawyers, if they're good lawyers, which they are, because, you know, this is a celebrity yeah. case, like we said, essentially, they're going to find any and every hitch in the wagon, chink in the chain to try to get this guy off in any way, or just to delay the yeah. inevitable, which a lot of the time I think right. they end up doing that. And that's kind of oh yeah, where they stand. Yeah. Although I think this is a, a pretty decent argument. Truthfully, I did read somewhere that she's kind of a, a character, I guess. I think they called her strawberry shortcake in the, in the news media. Cause I think she has red hair or something. So again, this is an ongoing case. We'll report back as things happen. You know how we love to follow things into perpetuity and give you guys updates that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So we will continue to update you as this case continues to unfold. We want to thank Joanna Cottrell again. Thank you so much for this great recommendation. We had so much fun exploring this and such a good time yes. just talking it through and the different theories. Again, we didn't do as good a job as we had hoped of giving the opposite side of the spectrum where Scott is somehow <laughs> innocent. But regardless, uh, I hope you'll forgive us for that. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. 